Good. So um, I'm, my brain is sort of only partly here this morning, I have to admit, because uh, this week my wife and I celebrated our 20th anniversary, and so we are, and I wasn't, I knew, I don't want to, we are headed to Cancun. We're breaking the flask. Tonight we're getting on a plane, and we're going to Cancun, and so I'm just, my brain is not even entirely here. Um, but this week we were preparing for it, and of course, as you know, we're anticipating, getting excited about going, never done this before, um, one of the kids gets sick, right? And you know how when you have a large family and the sickness just goes whoosh through the family and everybody gets it. And so we're just waiting for the next person to get sick. And, you know, of course, it's going to be my wife and I. We're going to get sick right before we go to Cancun, right? So we're praying against that. And then uh, on Tuesday, so we leave today. This is Tuesday. I'm on the phone with my dad. It's his 75th birthday and we're just talking and telling him we're leaving. And he says, yeah, we, we went to Mexico. Uh, and one time, it was funny, uh, I'm on the phone, you know, it was funny. He said, um, we're about to leave, and we realized that your mom didn't have her passport updated. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> <gasps> you know. Uh, so I ran downstairs while I'm on the phone with my dad, and I'm rifling through the passports. And, you know, I traveled last year, so mine was updated, and my wife's had expired. Uh, and it's Tuesday, and we're leaving on Sunday. Um, so then uh, I was tried to finish the conversation with my dad. He, could, he finally said, you know what? Your mind is not here. Just go and solve the problem. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling, and, and so I have to, you know, get an expedited, an expedited, expedited passport in order to get it in time. And uh, I'm waiting. I'm talking on the phone. I thought, well, let me just see what the weather's going to be like down in Cancun, right? Don't know if we, we're going to be sick. We don't know if we have a passport. And so then I decided to check the weather. And sure enough, I pull up the weather, rain every single day that we're going to be in Cancun. Right? And so finally, we, we had this moment. I, I, I talked to my wife and said, well, hopefully, you know, the passport will come. Um, and, and it did. So we're thankful for that. Uh, and, and, and we didn't actually get sick uh, yet. And so that's great. Uh, and, 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 and I said, but we said to her, we just kind of looked at her and said, you know what? Okay, let's just say this happens. We get down there. We're sick, and it's raining the whole time we're still going to have a great time, right? So it's just a posture that we took, and it, and it was so freeing once we took that posture, like, okay, fine. All that can happen. We're still going to have a great time. So we're going, and uh, it's going to be great. But it reminded me a little bit as I'm reading through Ecclesiastes this week, uh, uh, the way life is and how we have a really hard time kind of managing it and getting our, our heads around it and mastering it. We just can't ever seem to master this life, right? It gets away from us. Every time we try to control it and, and make a good thing happen, you know, it's just like, it just, it's just hard to master this life. And it's one thing, it's kind of funny when you talk about vacation and, and maybe that not going the way that you wanted to, and, and it is not a big deal. But when we think about our lives, the life itself, and, and, and how it can get away from us, and how, you know, we think we've made all the right plans and everything's going to go a particular way, and it doesn't, and it, it, it gets away from us. And what do you do when the stakes are high with the big things of life? What's your posture towards it? And, and, you know, with this Cancun trip, we took a posture of like, okay, whatever, whatever happens, that's one posture that you can take. Uh, and people take all kinds of postures towards life. And some of them are fruitful and helpful, and some of them are, are less so. And what I love about the book of Ecclesiastes, and in particular the, the text that we're going to look at today, uh, Kohelet, the writer, 
the, 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 we called him uh, the preacher. If, if you want to hear a little bit more about the background of the book of Ecclesiastes, you can listen to last week's sermon, went through the background of Ecclesiastes. But, but the preacher, the one who gathers to teach wisdom, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's going to take us on a journey exploring different postures towards the complexity of life. The, this world that's sometimes confusing and complex, he's going to kind of take us on a journey of examining the different postures we can have. So would you open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, uh, I want to encourage you to raise your hand and we'll give you a Bible because um, every day it's like this, especially today, uh, you're going to want to follow the text. There's a lot of text that we're going to look at today, so I'm going to be speaking less and reading more, and so it's important for you to follow along um, in the text that we have. Today's probably the largest passage that we have in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it all hangs together, so there's no way to really divide it up. Um, but like I said, I'm going to talk less and read more, so it'll all work out the same. Uh, and, and in this text, what the writer is doing is exploring with us the different postures that we might take, and I think you're going to see yourself, I know I see myself in a lot of these, the postures that we might take towards a, an often confusing and a very complex world, okay? Uh, and he's going to explore and examine them and, and help us to, to kind of understand how to, how to move through these. So the first one uh, starts in verse 12. I, the preacher, this is really the philosopher. So I'm going to give you the headings right up front. This is the philosopher striving to rise above the world. The philosopher striving to rise above the world. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart. And, and in the Old Testament, when it talks about heart, it's, it's not the same way we talk about heart. It's not Valentine's Day kind of heart. The heart in the Old Testament understanding was the seat of your will. It was sort of the controlling force in who you are. So it's your mind and also your will, your, your desire. So, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. And so what you find about Kohelet, the writer of this book, he likes to put his conclusions right up front. So he said, I'm gonna, I, I, was, I, I applied my heart to search and to seek for wisdom, and then he tells us the result right away. It was a very short-lived search Everything was vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. So when he looks at the world around him, it is what it is. And, and, and by thinking, you're not going to fix it, he's saying. You can't just think about it differently and, and make, it, make it right. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, you can't make what is not suddenly appear. You can't think your way out of the brokenness, is his conclusion. Verse 16. I said in my heart... I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom, listen to this, is much vexation. That's annoyance, confusion, vexation. In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, our search for wisdom is in vain. 
when I was in seminary, uh, grappled with some of the more difficult issues of the faith and of life. And I remember very vividly grappling with the issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, a lot of times people will talk about this as the whole issue of free will and to what extent do we have free will and all those questions. And um, I entered into that conversation and, and I had this sense that I'm going to figure this out, right? And so I began to think and, and read and, and struggle through it and, 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 and I just kept banging my head against that wall to try and solve that mystery. And I remember vividly sitting in one of my professor's offices and, and just arguing and debating with him. And, and he just sat there listening and sort of reflecting back. And, and finally, I came to this point where, you know, it was like I had put my crash helmet on and I'd run into the wall enough times and now my helmet was broken and I was sort of lying in pieces and I was ready to give up. And he very graciously said to me, you think that question is difficult. Wait till you really start to ponder the incarnation seriously. <laughs> That's very encouraging, right? Um, there are questions like this in life where we, we have these moments. I don't know if you feel these moments where you suddenly feel invigorated and alive and you're like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve this mystery. I'm going to make sense out of what doesn't make sense in life. And you go after it. And then after a period, you start to run out of energy. And then you sort of feel like you're lying on the ground with your helmet in pieces, holding the shattered shards of it and saying, I give up. I raise the white flag. I can't get my head around some of the complex questions of this life. Now, one of the areas where we often feel that, I think, is with personality and trying to, you know, we have all these tests we take and, you know, we try to figure out what makes us tick and what motivates us. And, and it's fun for a while and then it becomes extremely frustrating. Because you can't master it. You just can't figure it all out. You can't think your way to perfection. You can't rise above it in sort of your mental capacity to make sense of everything in this world. And then you've got it under your thumb and under control. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And so what does he say? He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I love to read. Lots of books in my office, and then lots of books in my house. People walk into my office sometimes, they look at the wall of all those books. Wow, a lot of books, and I feel like, yeah, a lot of books, you know. But what does it mean, ultimately? It's lots of vexation is what it really means. All these books lined around my office, right? If I'm placing my sense of trust that I'm going to be able to figure out the world if I just read the... How long... Do you have a book list? That you, uh, uh, you have a shelf with a bunch of books you've been meaning to read, and you, and you feel really guilty because you haven't read them, I'm just going to free you from that guilt right now, okay? Just in one little sweep, this verse. It's all a bunch of vexation, right? Now, is it good to read? Yes, I love to read. I'm going to continue reading. But reading is about relishing a topic and trying to explore it more and understand it and sit with it and let God work through it. If we read because we think we're going to somehow achieve some control over the world through it, then that's when we're in trouble, right? Because it will always fall short because we'll never be able to understand completely. That's beautiful. God made a very complex creation that we should relish and dive into. I'm not anti-thinking. I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm not anti-any of that. But let's keep it in perspective at the end of the day. 
we're not going to master it. And that's what the philosopher discovers. And so the first posture towards a confusing and complex world is to, be, is to try and rise above it. And then he discovers that he can't rise above it. It's, it's too complicated. It's too complex. And so the philosopher, Koholet, he goes on to the next thing. Well, let me try something else to make sense out of the world. And, and so I'm calling this the reveler seeking fulfillment from the world. So if the philosopher is striving to rise above it, the reveler, that means a party-goer, you know, a consumer, um, somebody who indulges all of their desires. The reveler seeks to find fulfillment from the world. Look in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12 with me. Oh, excuse me, uh, wrong one. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Remember, he likes to give us his conclusion right up front. So he says, I went out to test pleasure, and here's what I concluded, and then he's going to tell us the process that led him to that conclusion. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he starts with alcohol. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Verse 4, I made great works. And so um, he's in the realm of consuming or indulging the desire to make great things, to have great things. I made great works. This speaks to us as Americans because we can get just about anything that we want, right? We're the, we're the, the consumers of consumers in the history of the world. Um, We're all like kings in a sense because we can have so much. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Uh, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. Right, this is, I told you last week, this is the book for Americans, uh, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, so artists, so he, he pursues art, so he's got, he started with alcohol and then consumption and now art, singers, both men and women, and many concubines, so sex is the fourth one, the delight of the children of man. So alcohol, materialism, um, art, sex, all of these, he's pursuing to indulge all of them to see if in them he might find the meaning and the purpose of life. He might gain something. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. So all this pursuit, this this reveling and this consuming, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the reveler goes out and he's going to party and just try to get everything that he can and, and just sort of absorb uh, all that he can. Uh, and, 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 and he's going to just, just sort of, uh, you know, indulge his every whim and, and, and it ends up being vanity. Vanity. 
We've all had that, that reveler that, that we've met maybe on a Saturday morning after a particularly rowdy Friday night, you know. Maybe you're the, the stable Christian friend and they call you up and you go to coffee and you sit across the coffee table and there's this party goer whose eyes are hollowed out, right? Kind of electric, like a light bulb that's been burnt out. Uh, and they're raising the white flag. I'm done partying. I've, I, I've, I've, I've done so much, I can't take it anymore. I'm wearing myself out. Some of us have been that person, right? Some of us have been that person. Uh, whether it was, you know, in your college time or afterwards, you were like this second uh, person, the, the, the reveler, and pursuing. And, and you got to a place where, you know, your body was just being thrashed night in and night out, and you just couldn't take it anymore and you finally raised the white flag and you said there's got to be a different posture towards the world because this one is not working for me. I'm, a, I'm hollowed out. I'm a shell. I'm a burnout light bulb. Uh, it's all vanity. The reveler is seeking fulfillment in pleasure and ends up finding none. Which takes us then to the third posture starting in verse 12. Chapter 2 verse 12. This is not this is the one I'm characterizing as the shrewd person who tries to beat the world. So you've got the philosopher who's going to try and rise above the world. You've got the reveler who's just going to dive in and seek pleasure as a means of, of attaining meaning and, and purpose. And that doesn't work. And then you've got the, the shrewd person. This is the one who's on the ball. The, the astute person who applies wisdom not in the theoretical kind of a way that the philosopher does but more in the strategic life way that we often see uh, around us. Um, I find this one probably matches most closely my experience living here in the Bay Area. People who are on the ball, people who are uh, sort of capable, smart, able to kind of harness their energy towards mastering the world. We're going to win, right? We're going to, we're, yeah, the world's complex and confusing, but I'm going to meet it with my own resources. And my strategic plan is going to work, and I am going to be effective. And there's a sense in which people can achieve a measure of that if they compare their, themselves to others. But at the end of the day, right, what this ends up leading to so often is workaholism, uh, people who, whose uh, idolatry is in their work, and and mastering and, and, and having enough money and making sure their kids go to the right school and they've got their whole future planned out and, and it just becomes this whole life pursuit. That's the kind of person that seeks to live wisely. Verse 12, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom. So see, that's what it is. In living wisely. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. <laughs> you see that? Yeah, that guy's got his eyes in his head. Yep. Look at him go. He's killing it. But the fool walks in darkness. And then I perceive that the same event happens to them all. See, he gives us his conclusion again. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So here I am, I got all my schedules and my charts and my plans, and I'm killing it. And what's going to happen to me is going to be the same thing. 
Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. So, so not only if you take this approach and you just say, I'm going to win, I'm going to beat it, I'm going I'm to p- apply all of my skill and my giftedness to, to meeting the, the, the confusion, the complexity of this world. And let's just say you do that and you're a workaholic and you succeed on some measure then basically what he's saying is, is that's worse because now you've just suffered a lot through your whole life and at the end you have the same result. Hey? You feeling hopeful at this point? Verse 23, For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So we've got the vexation of the philosopher who tries to rise above it and master the world through his mind. If I just think rightly about everything, can't do it. And we've got the vexation and the vanity of the partier, the reveler, who goes out and says, well, I'm just going to indulge all my desires and and then I'll just get lost and absorbed into that. And and that ends up being vanity as well. Uh, And then we've got the vexation and the vanity of the, the, the one who's on the ball, the astute one, the sharp one. Right? The shrewd one who's going to master the world by their own skill. Got the world like a tiger by the tail. And then that ends up being vanity as well. So is there any hope? Is there any hope for us? What posture should we take towards the world? Is there anyone that might work? And that leads us to the fourth one. And I'm calling this one, The Beloved Who Humbly Receives. The Beloved who humbly receives what the world brings. But it's not just the world, as we'll see. In other words, it's possible, we're going to see, to live in the world, to enjoy to live in the world without depending on the world for meaning and purpose in life. It's possible. Look at what Kohelet says, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And one of the things I love about the Christian faith is it's not about escapism. You know, it's not about removing yourself from this world and and not being a part of the, 
the mud and the grime of it. It's not about elevating above. It's about entering in, and yet in the midst of entering in, it's about finding something that's, that's lasting and eternal. That's the title that we have for this series is meant for eternal things. You have a capacity for eternal things, okay? And, and, and yet that capacity doesn't take us out of the world. We go through what's around us, what seems less eternal, into that, and we discover what's eternal, And that's what it says in verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But there's an approach, there's a posture towards eating and drinking and finding enjoyment that makes all the difference in the world. And that's what he says next. For uh, this also uh, I, I saw is from the hand of God. See, that's the posture that makes all the difference. If we enter into eating and drinking and toiling, and, but do so under the hand of God, it makes all the difference. Verse 25, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's the point. This phrase that happens 29 times, under the sun, is a very cynical phrase. It means doing life apart from God. Doing life apart from God. But to do life with God, that's what he's describing. That's when life suddenly takes on what it was intended to be, the meaning and the purpose. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, that is God, the one who pleases God, and don't get tripped up by that phrase. That's a phrase that could trip you up. Uh, It really, to translate it literally, is pleasant before the face of God. To the one who's pleasant before the face of God. And it's the same in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament. We're told in the Old Testament, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So we, 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 we become pleasant before the face of God, not because we're perfect people and we do life the way it should be done, but because of faith in God. When we place our faith in God. Now we know because of the New Testament how to focus that on the person of Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus went to the cross He died on the cross, atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that whole thing about being righteousness, being reckoned to you, that happens through Jesus Christ. And and because of that, we are now pleasing in the eyes of God. So, So we're his beloved because of faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We're his beloved. And how does God treat his beloved? How does he look upon his... Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him... God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. The sinner who doesn't want, ultimately doesn't want God, wants to be his or her own God. To the the one who turns his or her back on God and then lives a life accordingly, then, then, then they're not living before God, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So, the beloved is called and invited to live before the face of God. And you see, that's the contrast with with this phrase, living under the sun, which is living a life apart from God. And I'll tell you, Christians and non-Christians, we can all do that, right? Because non-Christians can live apart from God. We're, We're not thinking about God. But Christians can do it too, right? We come and maybe we gather together like this and we worship and we're thinking about God and then we go through the rest of our week and and hardly a thought of the Lord comes or crosses our mind. 
We're living apart. We're, we're practical atheists in a sense. We're living merely under the sun. We're relying only on the resources that are under the sun to accomplish the life before us. And, and God is inviting us into something much richer, much more profound, much more wonderful, much deeper. God is inviting us into something special, and that is to become His beloved and to live under His watchful care, to look beyond the sun, S-U-N, to the, the sun, S-O-N, and to live under the watchful care of the Son and the Father, to stop doing life alone, but to do life with God. This is why we bring forth this morning our educators, because we don't want, if we're an educator and that's our career, we don't want to do education apart from God. We don't want to just try and carry out life apart from God, under the sun. That's what that means. We want to invite God in. And so together this morning, it's so beautiful to take all those people that are going to spend hours this week in education and to, for us as a community to say, look, God, would you meet them in that place? And would you work in and through their lives? Would you bless them? Would you help them to do what you've called them to do, not just merely under the sun, but before the face of their maker with his help and his, his daily guidance and assistance? That's what we're talking about. And I don't even have my mind around this. And I'm not sure the last two weeks, we don't have like some, some really concrete action points out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we may have some of those at some point. But we're in this realm more of like relationship rather than tasks here. And what we're talking about is just doing life with the Lord, not forgetting that He's present in your life all the time. And that you can call upon Him at every, any moment. You can invite him. You can depend upon him in the midst of your frustration. You don't have to wait until Sunday to say a prayer and to invite God to help you and to move in your life. That's what we're talking. And that's a relational thing. And it's, it's a habit thing. And it's something that there's not just a number of simple action points you can take to make part of the reality of your life. It's, it's living before the face of God, moment by moment, day by day. And so some images that come to my mind related to that, and I used this image before, is you ever been in a conversation, you're in a circle with people, and you're in a conversation, and somebody else who's maybe new to the community kind of doesn't know what to do, and so they walk up kind of to the circle, and maybe you've been that person before too, and the people are talking in the circle, and those people have a choice, right? They can open the circle, and suddenly the person feels enfolded into the conversation. Or they cannot open the circle and just keep talking. And then here's the other person in the back row feeling really awkward, trying to figure out, what do I do, right? And then they might go on to the next group. Maybe they'll let me in, right? Sometimes we do that with God. We got our little circle of life. We have our little schedule and our people that we're talking to and our tasks and our calendar and everything. And it's all right here. And God's on the outside. And there's something, and this image just helps me, there's something about opening up and just inviting the Lord in. He wants us to live before Him moment by moment. And I don't know how you do that, but by prayer, by it's a posture of inviting Him in, <clears throat> by opening His Word and Scripture and, and getting more of it into you, by being a part of community, and, and by that I don't mean just being here on Sunday morning, which is 
important, but also having people know you. And, and we, we talk about home group as being the place where people can know you and be in your life and pray for your specific things. These are all ways in which we open the circle to invite God in so that we, <clears throat> we're not doing life. It means in the middle of your day, when you come to that place where you just don't know where to go, you drop to your knees, you close your office door, you drop to your knees, and you pray. And you just ask God, please invade my world right now. Show me where to go. That's what, that's what it means. And life, apart from God, apart from that kind of intense relationship with the Lord, is meaningless. That's, that's, what, the, that's what the Ecclesiastes writer is saying. I tried them all, he says. I tried every which way, and it's meaningless. And then if, that, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, I get that. I want to open the circle and I want to invite God into my life. Will he show up is maybe your question. Will he, will he come? Will he show up? Because you've got to have that confidence. And I would want to remind you of the character of the God that we are talking about. This is the God who stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to come and meet us, to get his hands and his feet dirty, to, to actually go through birth in a manger in poverty in a time when, in a, you know, with animals all around, in a time when they didn't have the, the kind of uh, things that we have to, you know, safety and security and all that. This is the kind of God we're talking about, okay? So yes, if you open up, He will meet you. Invite him in. Stop living under the sun merely. Look beyond the sun and invite God into your life to do it with you. And when he does that, he starts to inhabit the simple things of life. And something that seems so mundane and purposeless, like saying hello to your neighbor or walking across the street to have a conversation, you know, if we're open to God's leading in that, that conversation can turn in wonderful, powerful ways. I had this happen with me yesterday. Yeah, that conversation can, can strike on meaningful things, and you walk away and you say, that was, that was life. That, that mattered for eternity. That conversation mattered for eternity. Right? When we invite God in, He will meet us. And He takes the simple things of life, the mundane things, and He, he fills them with eternal meaning because we have that capacity he made us that way he seems to delight in doing so and so invite him in 